Now, how's that for an opening to our episode with the one and only Gregory Maguire? Before I start the interview with Gregory Maguire, I first want to say that I would not have been able to ask such evocative and creative questions of Mr. Maguire without my Broadway musical students who are at Stony Brook University in the English department. And their assignment was to ask Mr. Maguire an interview question. And they submitted all of these questions to me. And I used some of them to help form questions I would ask Gregory. So if I wasn't able to ask your question, you know, there's only so much time, but what I have done is for all of the educators out there and the public in our episode notes, you'll see a Google document and it says wicked student corner, click the document and you will see each of my students, their first name and the question they asked. And I want to use this as a teaching model for all of you out there, because at the ivory tower boiler room, please use one of our podcast episodes. Maybe you want to start with wicked and assign the podcast episode, but first have your students do a creative assignment. What would they ask Gregory Maguire if they had the chance and see what they say um, for interview questions and then have them listen to the podcast. And it's a really great teaching method to try to discuss a writer's approach to creating a work of fiction. So without further ado, here is Gregory Maguire. I think that the that the, the goals of most um, fiction that moves us are fairly consistent. They're fairly consistent. One one goal you have is that you want people to think what we do matters in life. What you know, it, it's a 19th century novel of ideas in a way, even though it was published in 1995, the end of the 20th century, but it suggests little bit like a Tolstoy to put myself in grand company that I don't deserve. It suggests that what, what, what moves we make in life and what our behaviors and actions are really have consequence and, and, and are important. Um, so what we do matters. We, time is brief and, and we should cherish those whom we love. We should mm -hmm. cherish them while we have them. This is Andrew Rimby with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. If you are seeing me right now, you are surrounded by Wicked and Gregory Maguire's Worldscapes. So I am joined by the one and the only Mr. Gregory Maguire, the great and powerful. <laughs> Hello, Gregory. This is such a treat. Hi, Andrew. It's really, really nice to, uh, to meet you through uh, this strange and quixotic mechanism we call Zoom and to see uh, evidence of the landscape of my mind uh, decorating the landscape of your room there. Yes, well, 
I should begin with my first time experiencing your novel. I have the original copy is uh-huh. when your novel Wicked, right? The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, um, almost 30 years old, but um, 1995, right? Is when it yeah, came right, out. Exactly. Yep. Um, that I was about to see the musical. So my mother took me to the local Barnes and Noble in South Jersey. And there was the whole display of the cast album and then the musical tie-in edition. I was in fifth grade and I devoured your book and my students can't believe that I read your novel in fifth well, grade. Yes, I, I, I'm a little shocked myself. I, if, you had, if your mother had written to me and said, is this appropriate for a fifth grade boy? I would have said, absolutely not. You know, preserve, preserve his innocence. <laughs> Well, I learned a lot, but, and we'll get into all the different layers. I mean, teaching it now and looking back, there's so much psychological layers that I, you know, was not um, latching onto. But first, I didn't know you have a PhD in literature. Is that correct? That's right. I, I, I got my PhD in 1990, a couple of years before I began um, writing Wicked, I did not take the PhD in order to become a better writer. Hmm. Um, In fact, while it certainly has some benefits, that isn't necessarily the way that one would choose to go. I took the PhD, I enrolled in it because at the time I had a tenure track position teaching in a college and it was required in order for me to be eligible for tenure, which at the time I thought I wanted. I then didn't want it, I left the college, but I kept, I had already done half the degree anyway, so I, I kept on with it. Yeah. Were you teaching mostly fantasy or? I was teaching a great deal of fantasy. I was an, an assistant professor at the Center for the Study of Children's Literature at Simmons College, which is where I had incidentally uh, gotten my own master's degree. I got my master's degree. I graduated and I was hired, you know, half a year later to be on the faculty. Uh, and to, and also to be on the on the kind of office side of things as well, institutional management side. Mm-hmm. So um, so that so I, and I liked doing that, uh, and I was very riven with curiosity about children's books my whole life from childhood on. Um, but it all came together when in the early '90s I decided my intellectual ambitions and my love of the way that children's stories deal with the complex world could could get married and could provide the fertile breeding ground for something like Wicked. Mm, Wow, yeah. So when does your, I wanna say your first rendezvous with, with the Wicked Witch of the West begin. I mean, do you remember your first time seeing The Wizard of Oz or when it entered? I don't remember precisely the the first time, but I do remember the circumstances, which um, will be familiar to anybody uh, who might be watching this, who is in my generational uh, bandwidth, as it were. Um, My parents, I should say, were very strict people, and they did not admire the blandishments of television such as was coming over the airwaves in the late 50s and early 60s when I was a kid and stumbling into the living room to see what people were doing. Uh, They therefore limited our TV access uh, strictly. 
But one of the ways in which they occasionally relented was to let the family watch The Wizard of Oz when it was annually rebroadcast every year. It's hard for, for contemporary young people really to put themselves back into the mindset of what it is not to have instant access to everything all the time. Uh, yeah. the, the annual airing of The Wizard of Oz wasn't available in video because there were no videos. Nobody had a VCR, nobody had streaming, nobody had phones or computers. All we had was that, that piece of furniture with the wooden sides and the glass front that was called a TV in the, in the middle of everybody's living room in America. And so we were enthralled and beholden to the scheduling of the three main um, networks. Uh, one of them, I think it was CBS, but I'm not really sure, would air The Wizard of Oz every year and my parents let us watch it. So your question, Andrew, was do you remember the first experience of it? I don't remember the first experience of it, which means I probably was allowed to watch it young and maybe younger than I was really ready for it. Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember the experience of knowing it was part of the calendar of thrills that were provided in childhood. We had Easter, we had Halloween, we had the 4th of July, we had the Wizard of Oz. It was almost liturgical and one could look forward to it, anticipate it, look back upon it and know that it would come again next year, just, uh, just like one's birthday or like Christmas Eve. Yeah. And was it soon after this, it kind of reminds me how the sound of music now appears every year. And I think the Wizard of Oz still is played during Easter time. If I I, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. Every now and then I get emails from excited friends who say, oh, the Wizard of Oz is on tomorrow. And it's like, well, oh, actually doesn't do anything for me anymore. Oh, that's so sweet <laughs> though. In the way that it did when I was a kid. But I still like the fact that 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 young people are having exposure to it. It probably looks kind of uh, shabby compared to CGI effects mm -hmm. that uh, the newer uh, generation, the younger generations, plural, mm -hmm. are used to. Uh, and even I admit, um, as a kid, you know, I knew that Bert Lahr was a man in lion pajamas. I knew he wasn't a real lion. Uh, I knew the scarecrow wasn't a real scarecrow. It was a man dressed up like a scarecrow. Uh, but the witch seemed like a real witch to me. It's funny, there's a distinction between the cardboard and costuming of a certain kind of vaudeville approach to entertainment mm -hmm. and the deep and malign what I thought of was kind of reality of the personification of evil in The Witch. She seemed in some ways uh, the most genuine of all the people in Oz, um, more genuine than the wizard or Glinda uh, or the people in costumes, you know. Um, she, was, she was the real deal and she anchored the film for me, both dramatically and I suppose, looking back on it morally. Yeah, I will always remember um, I grew up right near a town called Pittman that has this vaudeville theater from the 1930s uh -huh. and started by playing movies. And when I was young, they were doing The Wizard of Oz and it was when one of the surviving um, Munchkin actors came and uh -huh. spoke after. And I will always remember how kind 
they loved Margaret Hamilton. Like yeah. Margaret Hamilton was apparently one of the nicest. And I will always remember when she surprises Judy Garland, this is on YouTube. And uh -huh. Judy says, can you do the cackle? And like Margaret Hamilton does it for her. Uh, and yeah, I, I think, that up. <laughs> yeah, no, you should. Yeah, I heard Judy Garland and Margaret Hamilton were like the life force yeah. um, for that yeah. set. But well, and I don't know a lot about the Glinda actress. I think her name, yeah. Billy Burke. Billy Burke was her name. Yeah, I heard she had a certain tone. <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's you know I'm not gonna gossip, but <laughs> well, no. Even even uh, even a kid could see that she was supposed to be a beautiful princess, um, and that was fine. Her 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 gown and her garb and her fluting voice and her kind manner were all persuasive. But she'd been around the block a couple of times. She didn't, you know, she looked more like a, a queen than a princess. I mean, a princess implies somebody who's young and. Even a six-year-old could see, you know, she 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 wasn't exactly young. She was something else. Yeah, and there's a certain manipulation, like you oh, can yeah. tell the way she plays Glinda. There's, um, there's a fear. Like, why is she plotting these things with Dorothy, and, you know, leading her to this path? Yes, yes. I mean, the the very often the question uh, arises where you know, when did the story of Wicked as its own story get seeded mm. in my mind? And it had to have been early on because there were two things about the movie that arrested me as a child. And I don't mean the first or second or third viewings, but by the time I was in third or fourth grade and seeing it for the sixth or seventh time, I began to be more aware of my own reactions. Like what's, we would talk, what scenes are you looking forward to? What scenes do you hate? What scenes are boring? You know, we had nothing else to talk about. So we talked about that. And I, I found myself really aware that the, the wizard uh, was a creep. He was, mm. and, and he didn't, I mean, Dorothy does lash out at him a little bit and call him a bad man in one line. And he says, he deflects that and says, I'm not a bad man, I'm just a bad wizard. And she says, oh, okay. You know? And uh, it's like, there's, there's no consequences to his having put all four of them in mortal danger uh, for, his own, um, for his own needs. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I, I grew up in the shadow of Vietnam and all through my childhood, I thought I might be drafted and sent to war. And to me, that's what he did with them. He drafted them and he sent them out to um, to vanquish his enemy and he wouldn't come out of the ca the castle or even or even show his face because he was so timid and and so um, so manipulative. And I found I, I never found him cozy or endearing. and I while I didn't take against him and want to throw you know rotten fruit at the TV, I always thought they were Dorothy was better off without him, and she mm. was good to get out, out, out of there. And to a lesser extent, when Glinda says at the end, "You've had the power all along in those shoes," you know, that to a lesser extent, I thought, "Well, why, really?" And you also allowed this child to get into mortal danger, you know, for what? What do you get out of this? And mm. the whole thing. Um, I, I think I was very sensitive to issues of right and wrong. 
and issues of victimization and issues of castigation, even without having any words for it. So I, one of the things that I, I loved Dorothy, of course, and I cared about what happened to her. I liked her three friends pretty well. Um, but also I look back at it and I think, the one thing you, ha you have to admit about the witch, however scary she was, and I used to have nightmares about her, she never said anything she didn't mean, mm -hmm. unlike all the other adults in the story. Uh, and so on a certain deep tissue kind of way, at least I admired her, her genuineness. That's, that's really where the story began. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to put it that way until I was in my late teens. But I think subconsciously that was part of where the story began for me. Yeah. Did you find a lot of layers of the witch in L. Frank Baum's series? You know, I, I did. Um, I did not. Uh, but that was, that was a great boon to me because if he had gone into her psychology or into her backstory very much, I would have felt compelled to honor the rubrics and to work within the foundational outline that he had set. But he was not interested really in creating a deep tissue uh, history of Oz or a deep tissue consistency in even the makeup of Oz. Uh, he too was more pasteboard and, and, and vaudeville. Mm. He was closer to um, Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll in the inconsequence of what happens and who people are than he was in amusing the child reader on this page and the next page and the next page. Uh, that was sad to me because once I found the Narnia books, I wanted to go back and I wanted Oz to be as deep and consistent and intentional as Narnia and later on as Middle Earth, although I was never the big, big Middle Earth fan that so many people are. But that was not what Baum was providing. Uh, so my appetite, my appetite for that kind of consistency and coherence uh, actually was another motivating factor to my writing Wicked because I wanted to take what was on the table and make a design out of it that would make sense and wouldn't contradict very much. I changed some things, but in the, in the end, I wanted readers to come away thinking this is a more coherent place uh, with all its complications and all its contradictions, it's more coherent now than it was in 1939 or even in 1900. Yeah, well, something that shines through, especially in all of your work, but, you know, holding up Wicked um, is the political allegories and how you respond to social unrest. And I mean, we're recording this right now. There's a lot of social unrest and yes, yeah. you know, really sending our hearts out. Um, yeah with what's happening in the Ukraine. And I think though, like you've mentioned the Vietnam War, but the Wizard of Oz was always an L. Frank Baum too. We have, you know, the world wars, we have the Great Depression with the right. film. Um, and even right before you probably start writing Wicked, and maybe you were already writing it in the eighties, but there was that film, do you remember Return to Oz? Oh, I do remember it. Um, and I admired it more than a lot of people did. I, oh, I, I, I didn't, love it. I, I didn't love I didn't love it, oh, but okay. I admired it. And I thought that the woman, the, the young kid they got to play Dorothy was really fine. Firuza mm -hmm. Bulk or Balk or something like that. Uh, 
And I, I liked lots and lots of it. I've only seen it once, but I found it was really strong and, and intense and laced with a, a kind of, not nostalgia, but a kind of bourbon urgency. You know? It's really gritty. Uh, like her characterization, that's what I yeah. like is, I mean, it starts in a mental institution, which is yeah. very intense. And very like intense. the decapitation of the queen, right? Like she can, she has the heads of women. Yeah. yeah, it's a real, but again, what I like though, is it does have that gothic, the dark undertones of psychology that, yes. you know, like, well, is, I think Emerald City is under siege and the yellow brick road has been like some bomb has gone off or something has yeah. happened where everything is, yeah, 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 it's sabotaged, it's war torn. And it kind of reminds me, you know, of, all of the different conflicts. And I mean, you actually have a part in Wicked um, called Uprisings, uh -huh. right? So, um, you know, let's get right into Wicked. I mean, I will say to everyone, <laughs> there will be spoilers, but um, <laughs> I think that, you know, so I know that it's published in 1995, but when do right. you actually start drafting Wicked? Well, that's a good question, um, and I know the exact answer, the exact answer. I started it on, I made the decision to start it on June 9th, 1992, I think it was. And the reason I remember that, it could be 93, I'm, I'm bad with math about when you count the number of years. You always forget whether you're supposed to add one or detract one. But um, I had been writing for 16 years already, I've been publishing for 16 years, and I had not had any great notice or success. I hadn't had any, any multiple, any bombs, as it were, but nothing had also caught. And I was having a hard time um, considering how I was going to have a career going forward. Um, and I'd written children's books up to then, chapter books, like, you know, like, mm -hmm the length of A Wrinkle in Time or, or uh, one of the slimmer Harry Potters, let's say. Uh, and uh, the, the fact of my biography is that when I was born, my mother died. She died in childbirth. Uh, and she died at the age of 38. So I spent a good deal of my, the first half of my life, uh, feeling responsible for the death, which was of course just uh, a consequence of life. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it was, it was a, a, a weight that I carried upon my shoulders on some level. Uh, but also as many people do, I felt, um, how, can I, how can I put this? I, it felt very strange to think that the day would come when I would be older than my mother had ever been. One doesn't expect that one is ever going to get older than one's parent. That's not actually supposed to happen. Of course, it does happen if you live long enough. But you, you know, when you're when you're in your thirties, I just kept thinking I was going to die when I was thirty-eight because I just couldn't picture being older than my mother. How does that, how does that happen? So June 9th, 1992, I think, was the day, maybe it was 93, um, was the day I turned 39. 
And on the day I turned 39, I said to myself, and I knew I, I, knew I was gonna say this, um, but I said to myself, okay, Gregory, you are now older than your mother ever was. If you've ever wondered whether you have enough going on upstairs to be considered a grown-up, it's got to be today because you're older than your mother. <laughs> you know, she was a grown-up when she gave birth to you, and you're now older than she was. So you can't anymore feel like you don't know enough about the world. You're older than she was. You are a grown-up. You can take on a grown-up job. And I'd been thinking about Wicked from time to time as a possibility of something to write that was for older readers. But I didn't really have the courage or strength to begin it until I turned 39. And that's when I began. But whether it was 92 or 93, I think maybe it was 92. Uh, uh, and that, that sounds about right. Uh, I had written a couple of things beforehand. I had actually written about six pages by hand, maybe in 1989, uh, but put it aside thinking you're not there yet. You're, you, you don't have a grasp on this. Wait till you're ready. And when I turned 39, I got ready. And then I wrote it in about five months, not five contiguous months, but over the course of the next 10 months, I spent five months writing and five months thinking. And by the end of the 10 month period, I had finished it. Wow. Well, first, that's extremely heartwarming. And, you know, I'm like tearing up because that's so powerful. And especially like what happens with Alphaba's mother, um, I mean, in your novel, she doesn't die from giving birth to Alphaba, but in the musical, right. she dies. So I'm yes, curious, right. did the creative team know about that? Like your connection to your mom? I don't know. Um, I think probably not. I think they just took the what, what was in the book. And also, of course, they, they needed to emphasize the witch's need for her father uh, in order to make the drama of the play be, be more coherent, more taut, let's say. And so getting the mother and the, and the putative father off stage fairly early was necessary so that Alphaba's reaction to the wizard, her relation, her confused relations with the wizard could, could become front and center and could supplant any other relationship she might have with her mother or her father. So it made it made dramatic sense, but it also made uh, kind of psychological sense to me too. She was yeah. adrift. That was part of her part of her problem. She had been alone her whole life. Yeah. But I do think, you know, you're gonna hear me gush a lot, but it's true. I think every part of Wicked gives such depth to the human condition. Like part one with the Munchkinlanders, I really think that you learn so much about social hierarchy and, mm -hmm. um, you know, Frex um, Alphaba's father, just to the listeners and viewers. I yeah. mean, I know you know your characters inside and out. Right, no, fair enough. But yeah. um, that he does have some Munchkinlander blood, so there's kind of, you know, hiding that about himself. But his right. wife comes from more of this blue blood background. So, like, it's a very interesting clash that goes on in their relationship uh-huh and i feel like that's a constant theme is covering up um like one's own feeling inadequate about one's own birth and circumstances yes uh, <laughs> i would like to meet the person who didn't who, who didn't go through childhood and adolescence 
without feeling that they weren't letting somebody down, probably most especially themselves. You know, uh, it's just, it's, it's part of growing up, it's part of the human condition, I'm afraid. One thing, Andrew, that, that is um, really curious to me is, and I hope will be to those uh, who are listening or watching, is that when you take a big project like this, uh, you, the writer has some sense of obligation and some sense of ownership to what is coming up within uh, the, uh, the creative mind. And one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is to look and see what you've done and stand aside and respond to it rather than to what you're initiating uh, theories and theses might be about what you wanted to do. My instance of that is to say that when I first started Wicked, I really thought I was going to be writing a book about the character who turned out to be a Margaret Hamilton type witch. I mean, wow. an absolute psychopath, a sociopath, um, a dangerous and um, driven monomaniacal individual. Um, I didn't know how she was going to get there, but that's, you know, or Humbert Humbert from Lolita or, mm -hmm. you know, Freddy Krueger, like, you know, we know no variety. Uh, this person would, would be soulless and psychopathic from the beginning. And I really intended that at first. I got to the scene, because since you're talking about the Munchkinlander section, I got to the scene about page 40 or so when Alphaba is about one and a half or two, and I finished writing the scene uh, with a paragraph that says, you know, the nanny and the mother are watching her and she is crawling around on the floorboards and she pees mm. on the floor and she leans down her green skin face to smell it and smiles at the smell of her own pee. Um, and I meant that to be revolting. I meant that to be evidence of her twisted nature, as it were. Uh, the next day when I got up and read the previous couple of paragraphs to just kind of gin myself up and get right back in the mood of things and find out where I was and the tone of where I was, I read that passage and I thought, oh, oh my goodness. Instead of hating her, my heart broke. My heart went out to her. Wait for that. No, I like I like the clock. <laughs> and uh, and I thought to myself, you poor thing. Nobody is ever going to get you, are they? They're never going to understand you. You are going to be alone your whole life. And on that day, my attitude toward my character changed. And I and, and my concept of what I was doing changed when I turned the page over and started the next chapter. Uh, it followed along. But I realized I had to, you know, this, this was a dance I was doing with my main character and she was leading and she should lead. And my job was to follow her and see where on the dance floor she took me. My job was not to lead her. I, I had to be, I had just had to be the scribe and follow her and see what she did and write it down. I thought two things would happen if I did this. One is that I would write a book that would be dismissed as, oh, somebody's tried to rehabilitate the Wicked Witch of the West, ho-hum. And it would not be taken 
um, mm. as a serious novel of ideas. And to some extent, I was right. That is what happened. The book, as successful as it's been, as beloved as it is by many people, has never been considered a novel of ideas in the way that I intended it to be. But that's a sacrifice I made. Um, I didn't make it for commercial gain. I never thought the book was going to do what it has done. Uh, I made it because my commitment to Alphabet was stronger than my own appetite to be considered a lofty intellectual by the New York Review of Books crowd. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, remind me if I'm wrong, definitely with the part, but um, an aspect that I think gives so much philosophical background is when Alphabet is hiding away in Fiera's homeland in the Vincus country. Right. But there's that right. specific section, is it Kiamako, where yes. Fierro yeah. has died? And I really love Fierro's wife. Um, I think Surima. Surima, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. like when we meet um, wh who will find out to be Alphabet's child. And, right. but all of that, right, is not in the musical, which I can. I'm kind of curious, you know, since, you know, I'm teaching, I've taught your novel first and now we're right. deep into the musical. Right. I showed a documentary that's on YouTube about the musical and right. there's a section, a quote, I don't know if you know of this, but it's called like behind, um, behind the curtain and it's about yeah. Wicked. And yeah. there's this beautiful photo of you on opening night with Steven Schwartz. Uh -huh. um, and there's a quote where you say, when you first saw Wicked performed, I guess it was San Francisco in its uh -huh. tryout, you were concerned. And then you eventually made peace with it. So what did that quote mean? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Oh, what a celebration we'll have today. Well, I didn't, I haven't seen that quote, whatever I said, um, I, I'm sure I meant, uh, uh, but I, when I first heard the read through of the, of the play, which was uh, like a staged reading just around a table, like mm. re reading a TV script where the actors are taking the parts only in this case, it was a sing through. Um, and it was in some uh, some loft in the West 20s, someplace in Manhattan, with Adina Gonzalez and Kristen Chenoweth. And, and uh, Stephen Schwartz was there and Winnie Holtzman. I think it was the first time I ever met Winnie, certainly the first time I met Adina and Kristen. And I didn't know what they were going to have done with the plot. What I did know is that I had given them pretty much carte blanche to do what they wanted with it. Um, once Stephen Schwartz had convinced me that 
he understood the reasons that I had written the book. Mm. I thought to myself, the plot is not sacrosanct. What's sacrosanct is the intention, is the moral, is the, is the mood. Um, and so I was funny in some places, Stephen Schwartz and Minnie Holtzman were funny in others. Um, I was serious in some places, Stephen Schwartz and Minnie Holtzman were serious in others. I, I, you know, when I first saw the plot and saw that Alphabob was going to pop out of the trapdoor at the end of the play, uh, I thought, oh my gosh, I've sat here for two hours and you know, 18 minutes investing in this character. Um, and now they've pulled, they've tricked me. They've pulled the rug out from under me. And I, was, I initially thought it was a cop-out and it was cheapening. Mm. And it turned the novel from a tragedy, it turned the story from a tragedy into uh, a drama with a bittersweet ending. And at first I thought that was a mistake. Uh, and, but what I, what I came to realize, and, and I should say the very, the very first performance to a, to a paying public, which was the first preview in San Francisco, there were, there were boos when Alphaba popped out of the stage. There oh, were, wow. you know, there was not everybody in the audience was happy and relieved. There was, there were, I'm sure there were some clappings, but I think a lot of people felt, wait a minute, this is a betrayal of what we know and have you been spending this whole evening tricking us? And, mm -hmm. you know, that's pretty cheap. Uh, and that's sort of how I felt. It wasn't the only thing that I felt, but it was one of the ways that I felt when I heard about what was gonna happen. But as I saw it, I, and I, the first week that it played in San Francisco, I saw it four or five times. And I did that partly thinking, if this never makes it to Broadway, I wanna be able to picture it in my head for the rest of my life. So I went, I went multiple times um, and it was wonderful each time. But by the time I got to the end of the week, I thought, well, actually what happens is the dramaturg and, and the um, musician, the composer have decided to get to the place that I wanted to be at at the end of the novel by taking a different method and a, and a different road. Um, I think that the, that the, the goals of most um, fiction that moves us are fairly consistent. They're fairly constant. One, one goal you have is that you want people to think what we do matters in life. Well, you know, it, it's a 19th century novel of ideas in a way, even though it was published in 1995, the end of the 20th century. But it suggests a little bit like a Tolstoy to put myself in grand company that I don't deserve. It suggests that what, what, what moves we make in life and what our behaviors and actions are really have consequence and, and, and are important. Um, so what we do matters we time is brief and, and we should cherish those whom we love. We should mm -hmm. cherish them while we have them. Those were three things that I wanted the reader to come away with at the end of Wicked, closing the book with a sigh, sad for the death of the witch rather than happy and relieved. But those are the consequences of observing a death. When somebody dies young, it reminds us to live more fully. Mm -hmm. It reminds us that what well, we, we do matter. It reminds us that we should be open and frank and um, persistent in our love. Uh, 
And that, that's what a tragedy gives to us. That's the reward of tragedy is it reminds us to live while we can. Yeah. In a way, the play gets there just taking a different tone and taking a different route. But you, you come out of the play with a, with a slight lump in your throat and you've been brought to the same uh, concluding basket of emotions. So once I, once I uh, came around to thinking about it like that, I began uh, to regret the dramaturgical choices a little bit less than I had, the, in fact, quite a bit less than I had the first time. Uh, yeah, and you're so close to the material. I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like to be at the workshop. And I remember the workshop, Dr. Dilliman died, like did, it followed more where there was a funeral. And, yes, exactly. um, and there was more death, death in the workshop than what we now see. But I see what you mean about the end because to Glinda, Glinda thinks Alphaba's dead. Right. So there is still that horror. There's still that pathway, like you're saying, you get there and Alphaba knows she can never return back. Right. And I'm kind of curious, like what do you make of how Alphaba and Glinda in the musical in a way, almost their different approaches to feminism are also, they're, they're such a leading lady pair that you rarely see. So like, yeah. were, you, were you surprised that Glinda was as, I'll say it, central to Wicked? Um, no, I wasn't because I knew that unless the um, play, unless the story of Wicked had been made into a miniseries, hmm. uh, which it still may do at some point, uh, that to put it, to take my story, which runs over a 38 year period and has something like 85 speaking parts, um, to put that on in two and a half hours uh, means inevitably that most of it has to drop away. And uh, most of the backstories have to drop away. Uh, uh, and and a lot of the philosophizing and and certainly a lot of my Rococo descriptions of manners and architecture and morals and you know whatever all that stuff has to be boiled down into a song lyric or two and that's that's mm -hmm. it. Um, I, I I expected that, and I also I knew that the that uh, Winnie Holtzman and Stephen Schwartz would have to find the strongest relationships that were available in the book and play on those because that's what theater is about. It's about conflict between individuals. So I pretty much expected that it would be Glinda and Elphaba. And I was not surprised that they made um, it into a romantic triangle with Fierro as the pivot point between Glinda and Elphaba. Um, one of the things that is less well observed but is nonetheless true is that almost every one of the changes that the script writer, the playwright, Winnie Holzman and Stephen Schwartz made upon the original material, which is my book, um, were keyed or cued or winked at by me in the book um, as if to say, oh, you think it's gonna go here? Well, it might have done if, if I were be more obvious, but it's not going to. So I gave I gave a few a few, few hints that um, Glinda uh, was not unaware of Fierro's charms, 
Mm -hmm. um, I gave uh, a hint that Alphaba thought that the scarecrow might be Fiero coming for her at last um, at the end of, um, in the Camel Co section at the end called the murder in his afterlife. Um, I, uh, you know, there's, there, was, there was a lot uh, that I threw out as red herrings to um, yeah. cause the reader to hope or to imagine. And then I would pull back that because it was perhaps too obvious for a book, but it wasn't too obvious for a play. Um, uh, and the play, as I say, got to where it was going using different tools and methods. Yeah, well, and even though you said there is that sadness, I mean, there is kind of a vampiric alphabet death. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, well, and my students really enjoyed analyzing the burning at the stake, kind of which imagery you put there. Oh, yes. Right. With her gown catching fire. And yeah. um, but we have all of your wicked years. So right after you're done <laughs> wicked, you can read Son of a Witch yeah, um, and right. make your way through. Um, but something that fascinates me a lot is, um, you know, really how throughout the novel, you really portray um, good versus evil. I mean, you've talked about like that is the philosophical vein. Yeah. And I was kind of curious. Um, I tried to do this lesson with my students and we found that we couldn't place any of the central characters on either purely good or purely evil, because like my students said, how are we basing good and evil ourselves? Right. And, you know, is that character, in is their intention, like Nessa Rose be being the governor of Munchkinland, right. is she coming from a pious place in her mind? She wouldn't necessarily see her actions as evil, even though to us, they seem, oh, this is authoritarian oppression to the Munchkinlanders. Right, right. 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 So, I mean, I am curious, though, which character do you um, sympathize with the most, which is tough. But Are you talking about the play or the book? In the book. In the book. Well, um, I think that your analysis of the complexity of each of the characters is adroit and correct. Hmm. And I, I can sympathize and empathize with people while still thinking you've got a few screw blueses, honey, <laughs> you know, um, a few screws loose, excuse me. Um, the, uh, the, the fact is that Alphaba is a very attractive character to me, but she is, she is maniacal at times and she loses, she loses her way repeatedly, mm. uh, morally. Um, she makes a lot of the same uh, mis assumption, mistaken assumptions that cause people to become vigilantes and cause people to go out into the public marketplace and do harm. I don't admire that. I admire her, 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 fero her ferocious passion for justice, but I don't necessarily admire her intellectual cool. Hmm. She's intellectually hot. She's not intellectually cool. And she therefore is in the grip of emotions that lead her, I think, to make poor choices repeatedly. Uh, if you were to change the question around a little bit, Andrew, and say, what is the moment in your depiction of the life of Alphaba that you most admire of her behavior? Hmm. It's, the, it's the moment in which she is superficially the most cruel, the most cruel. 
and that's the moment in the last section where um, the, the soldiers down the slope from her castle have crucified a man and he's dying and she goes under cover of darkness and kills him to take him out of his pain. And in some ways, I think that is her finest moment. She's finally used her passion and her power to do something totally selfless. And while she tried to kill Madame Morrible in the City of Emeralds section, she couldn't do it. That, you know, she hated herself for it, <laughs> for her weakness, for not being able to sacrifice a bunch of uppity schoolgirls, you know, from fancy houses. Um, she, you know, she, she may have made the right choice, but she wasn't happy with with her choice either. And it, it sort of sent her into another bit of a tailspin. Yeah. So, so I don't admire any of them fully. And I do recognize that everybody has reasons to make wrong decisions. And we all do make wrong decisions like all the time, um, all the time we make wrong decisions, even with hearts as, as big as all outdoors. Mm -hmm. We can't know enough always to make the right decisions. It's what we have to live with. It's a yeah. curse. Yeah. Well, and there's, right, the character who can't get away from death is Nessa Rose in the musical because the house has to fall. Yes. Um, and I do, for some reason, Nessa Rose, I do find one of the most intriguing of the characters you write. Uh -huh. Like just because of all of her, maybe it's because, you know, she's disabled and she was, converted really to believe in a certain religion by her father to like really fulfill, like trying to peel back the layers of what does she right. really, who is she at her own core Right, is difficult. And I'm always intrigued by those characters. Um, yeah, and I agree with you. I, 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 I can't tell you for sure. I have, a, um, I have a younger sister who is a evangelical Christian. Mm. Uh, and she once said to me, did you base Nessaros on me? Um, oh, wow. And I said, no, I did not. I did not, Annie. But I could see why she asked the question mm -hmm. because there, there, I have a certain skepticism toward people who are assured that they know something that nobody else knows or are assured that they have the answer to unanswerable questions. I, I, uh, I am comforted to think of them being comforted, but I don't wanna hand them my car keys. That's true, that's true. Well, and I think she does have the psychological depth in her musical number, The Wicked Witch of the East. Yes. Um, yeah. When, you know, the Ruby Slippers, again, different from your novel, right? She's yeah. gifted them from her father in the novel, in the musical, Alphaba concocts them from the grimmery to have her walk, which right. I think works really, you know, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. My, my students said, oh yeah, that makes sense to get her, you know, to transform her from being in the wheelchair and now walking and right. the Tin Man creation from Bach, like all of that, you know, fits together. But again, I think she has a lot of psychological depth, but I wanna ask you, again, I know, all of those with the cast and creative team. Yeah. This is Gregory's opinion. But yeah. which musical number do you really 
I don't want to say hits the tone for you, but it has a psychological depth that you think about a lot. Well, I, 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 that's, that's an easy one to answer, even though, I mean, most of them have at least two, almost every song has at least two moods in it. Um, but I, I mean, I love uh, Glinda's opening number at the top of act mm -hmm. two. Um, yes. Um, I, I am so glad you said, thank goodness. That's my favorite. Yeah. That's oh, really? my favorite number. I think it's, yeah. It's her largest character. I, well, we just ended class saying, "Do you, who has the? Who do you think? Which Alphaba Glenda stays with you longer after the musical?" Yeah. And not that Alphaba doesn't stay with me from the musical, but I think yeah. anyone who has a large character arc in a musical just stays with me because of their psychology. And yeah. I think Glinda, it's thank goodness when she actually realizes. The decision she's making to stay in power right right and she's yeah. not going to she's not going to get everything she wants and her life is not going to be uh she she was fed that happy basket of biscuits that we all get in childhood that things are going to be okay and things are not going to be okay um so that's certainly one of them but i probably would would have wobbled between thank goodness and no good deed which is mm. probably when I first saw the play, I thought that was one song that could come out. But as I've lived with the play for 18 years now, um, it's a highlight for me. I, I find it more powerful even than um, Defying Gravity. Um, Defying Gravity is brave and chilling, but no good deed is adult. And yeah, well, I agree. Yeah, that's a very... Again, I think that shows the rawness of Alphaba, right? Like, thank goodness is Glinda's rawness and No Good Deed yeah. is Alphaba's. Yeah. Um, no Good Deed is yeah. where, it, it, you know, it, to take the uh, the idea from Stephen Schwartz and Mary Halsman, No Good Deed is where she finally gets to be Margaret Hamilton. You know, uh, that's where that's where she's um, she's converted from being a, a schoolgirl to the person who was as capable of scaring the world as everybody said she already was. She mm -hmm. actually wasn't until that point, but at that point she she just embraces it and is um, you know, as close to being um, a psychopath or a sociopath as she's gonna get. She isn't really close there because even, even at that point she does back down. Yeah. Uh, but she's she's really losing it. I had a um I, I know our time is moving along. When yeah, when ahead. Wicked came out, uh Initially, I got a wonderful letter that I, I believe perhaps I didn't save, which was too bad, by a woman named something like K. Redfield Jameson or K. Redfield Jameson. And she has, she's the author of a number of books on human psychology, including one called An Unquiet Mind. Hmm. And it's, it's about... Uh, being bipolar and and uh and she wrote to me and she said i've just read wicked and you have put you have given us the portrait of a person who hits every single one of the characteristics that are identified for somebody who is mentally unstable in this particular kind of diagnostic way wow um, unstable is perhaps, you know, what word I shouldn't use, mentally uh, categorizable in this particular mm -hmm. diagnostic mm -hmm. way. 
diagnostic way. I didn't know whether I believed her or not. Um, I'm now 25 years older and I think maybe she's right. Maybe, um, maybe that's part of what Alphaba is, is like. I certainly, there's a, there's a certain thing that Bach says to Alphaba at the very end in the last section. I think the last time that they see each other when she's hunting for Dorothy, um, you know, and Dorothy has passed by Bach uh, and gone on and Elphaba shows up. And this actually is from a scene in the, in the book too. In, in the book, when Dorothy leaves Munchkin land and starts off for the wizard, she spends the first night at the home of a Munchkin farmer named Bach, B-O-Q. And that's where I got the character of Bach. And I, that's, how we, that's how we ended up studying agriculture at Chiz University, you know, 25 years earlier or whatever it was. 15 years earlier. Um, so Alphaba in my book comes down the road and she's showing up, you know, half a day or a day later than the scene that L. Frank Baum wrote. And, uh, and Bach says, she's looking for Dorothy and Bach says to her, are you, are you taking against her? Are you taking against her? Don't, don't do that. You know, like get a grip lady. Um, but that business of taking against somebody is actually um, one of the symptoms of certain kinds of mental disorders oh. where you grip onto somebody as someone who's harmed you and you can no longer see them as a full human being. You can only see them as the perpetrator of, of the harm that you have suffered. And I've, I've, you know, in the time since I wrote Wicked, I've seen that in a number of people, and I recognize it now as a symptom of a, of a um, condition that is hard to live with and hard for other people to live with too. So I think Kay Redfield Jameson actually may have been onto something without my knowing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know I was reading Wicked you know, I think four years after I came out as gay, and I know mm -hmm. that I can see there's such like those who feel marginalized or who are struggling, like thinking of coming out. Um, there's definitely like queerness, I know, um, throughout a lot of your works. Yeah. Um, and I just want to thank you for providing such um, a place to really, you know, go through all of the depths of someone who's just trying to find their authenticity. So, you know, thank you for that, Gregory. Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm, 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 I never really know if, whether one should say I'm proud or I'm humbled, but I suppose I'm a little bit both. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled that this has meant something to you and I'm proud that I was able to do something that had that impact for you and for many, many, many other people that I've heard from over the course of the last quarter century. Uh, uh, I mean, those, I, two things. I think everybody feels marginalized. No one in the world feels that they're in the center of the world unless they're really deeply, deeply, deeply ill. Like a few people we could name, but mm. we won't. Um, yeah, you're talking you, about narcissistic personality. I, I am. Yeah, I got it. I got it. And if you if you feel that you are that that centralized in the world, such that the lives of everybody else are really just some kind of moving wallpaper to ornament the space in which you're spending your time. Um, you know, that's a grave sickness. Most of us feel like we're moving wallpaper, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on, on the edges of somebody else's life. And it, when we're young, 
it cuts us to feel mm -hmm. that way. And as we get older, you kind of think, well, this ain't so bad. I can slide along here and, and watch what I want to watch and be who I want to be. And I don't have to measure up to anybody's um, portrait of me. That's not my job, you know? And, uh, exactly. and so being, having felt marginalized myself as a kid for many reasons, and you know, I've been able to dip my bucket in that in that well of despond, if you will, um, many many times, and find what I come up with is merely the the kind of moist essence of being human. Mm. We all feel that way. We all feel that way. Wow! Wow! Well, okay. So I'm going to move into a section that I'm calling student corner. And these are okay. not that it's going to be rapid fire, like, okay, <laughs> with a response, but they're, you know, more yeah. lighthearted and we've gotten sure. to the deep themes. I do want to let you know though, when I was, I think I was the secretary of our book club in high school, I chose uh -huh. Mirror Mirror, which I could talk a lot about, but everyone I know who loves Wicked, I say, you have to read Mirror Mirror because what you do with Renaissance, uh, the Renaissance and the bourgeois is <laughs> mind blowing and confessions of an ugly stepsister. I saw that ABC TV film, oh, yeah. which I loved and right. then read the novel. But um, OK, that kind of leads into one of my students questions. They really want to know, Aaron, about, you know. Um, and these were a few of my students. They really yeah. want to know about the other media form. So you mentioned about the rights of Wicked. Right. Um, is it still owned by ABC for a TV series? Uh, yes, it is. It's licensed by ABC. It's owned by ABC. At the time that I was, um, at the time that I was trying to uh, pedal it, as it were, or it was being pedaled, I wasn't really trying. It was pedaling itself. Um, I had I had been in the middle of adopting my three children who came to me as oh. as infants, and so the need to be able to pay for their upbringing as a, as a freelance artist was intense. And when the rights came back from Universal and were gonna be um, sold instead for the stage for a fraction, a penny on what Universal would have bought them for as a film, okay. I, um, I was able to uh, split the rights into a musical version and a non-musical version. The non-musical version I sold to ABC um, for enough money to help me remodel my house. Later on, when Wicked the Musical was such a big success, I went back to ABC and tried to buy the rights back because oh, wow. I could afford I could afford them, uh, and they didn't want to sell them uh, back to me. So yeah. they own, and they they have been slowly working for fifteen years to line up uh, a project that may be a miniseries. Um, I hope Based so. Please, please. I want it. My students, this was Gabriella too, like really want a TV show. And even as a class, we kind of already divided. Each part can be a season of Wicked. And then they could do that for every one of the Wicked years. It's true. It's true. And there's some thought about that. But, you know, it would have to be a success like on the level of Game of Thrones in order to merit that kind of that kind of investment. Yeah. But there's uh, so many know. streaming services now, I hope, because yeah, like it's, it's not impossible. I'm not I'm not holding my breath though. You know, I'm just getting on with my with my job, my day. No, day. it's true. It's true. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm also curious, do you remember any well, because I know the creative team, 
probably you had a lot of conversations. I know with Stephen Schwartz and maybe even Mark Platt, the producer, and Mm -hmm. Winnie Holtzman writing the book for the musical. But do you remember any cast member who wrote to you about your novel? Uh, Not, no, no, I haven't had, I haven't had any writing. I haven't had any letter from any cast member. Um, I have had conversations with cast members though. And one time uh, early on, uh, Carol Shelley, who played Madame Marable, and I were sitting next to each other at a dinner it was a birthday party for Joel Gray, I think. And she leaned to me and she said, I have a secret backstory for Madame Morrible. And I know why she is the way she is. Mm. And I said, oh, do you? What is it? Will you tell me? She yeah. Said, no. <laughs> oh, my but, goodness. <laughs> but I think, I think I could guess what it is. I think I could guess what it is. Um, but, but it's clear that that's how actors work. They actually go deep into the character. They think, I've got to find the reason for my character being this motivated to behave like this. What, what, what is it that the author is not telling us, but that nonetheless I need to know so I can motor this character across the stage? Yes, yes. And right, there's so many different acting methods. And like, I could see maybe someone wants to approach it more from... Um, like Stanislavski, which is, um, you know, just method, like really do method and maybe, you know, not want to do a deep dive of the material for the musical if it's going to complicate. But I mean, I like to approach by taking anything around and just analyzing. I mean, I'm sure though, you must have talked to Kristen Chenoweth and Adina Menzel at some point, right? Well, I talked to them a lot, but I didn't really, I didn't talk to them about their interpretation of the material because they're mm-hmm. professional artists. You know, they, they, they knew how to do their job. They didn't need my input. And uh, the one of the, the funniest, the only funny story I have about Adina Menzel, uh, not the only funny story, but the one that's pertinent to this is that in the famous um, uh, penultimate night that she played the role on Broadway, you may remember she fell through the trap door. Um, oh yes, yes. She wasn't able to do her final. She wasn't able closing. to do her final. And, and I didn't know about her fall the night before because I hadn't got the times the next morning. And so I was in New York to see her final performance. Oh, wow. And I opened up. I opened up the uh, the playbill, and it said tonight the part of of Alphaba will be played by Shoshana Bean. And I was like, what? And I've come down to New York to see Adina, and at at you know, Shoshana did a great job. Oh, yeah. Job. She's amazing. Well, I think all of those beginning, well, anyone who played Alpha, but also Stephanie J. Block. So they mean, were all, they were all great. All. This particular yeah. night, though, everybody was in the room was there because they wanted to see Adina's last night. Wow. And when Shoshana Bean came out instead of Adina, there was like, I mean, everybody had seen the slip, but she was not um, the flavor of the month. For, you know, they were they were annoyed, and Shoshana used that kind of resistance to her to power her own performance that night. And by the time she got to Defying Gravity, and she lifted up at the bottom of Act One, and she wasn't Adina Menzel, but she was saying basically "f you" to the, mm-hmm. to the audience, like I don't care. I'm, you know, the audience was just on its feet. They were just so with her. She had actually won them over the way the character of Alphaba. 
uh, moves through Act One. But at the end of that um, last night, Adina Menzel did come out on stage, as you may have read in, mm -hmm. in papers. And I think she, in a red tracksuit, if I remember. She was in a red tracksuit, and she had her neck and a collar, and right. she played the last 90 seconds or two minutes of the play. And then afterwards, there was an after party, and I went, and she was sitting in a booth like this, you know, high on, on all kinds of meds. And she went, she saw me and she went. And I went over and sat down next to her and I said, I don't want, I don't want to touch you. I don't want, I don't want to make you hurt anymore. And she said, you did this to me. And I said, what? She said, it's all your fault. And I said, what are you talking about, Adina? And she said, you always thought the witch should die. <laughs> oh, wow. Which was true. So she did oh, know. Oh, that's funny. Though. She did know my my reaction to the first readings of the of the play. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. I yeah. am curious. What? I mean, you probably know as much as we do about the upcoming movie musical, but are you tied to the project at all? I am not, no, I, I, I just made a decision very, very, very early on that I did not want to be beholden to it. I wanted to be a, a godfather or a grandfather, not a father. Those are decisions I had it within my legal rights to make and I made them in the interest of my own mental health and the interest of being able to pay attention to the needs of my children, which were more important to me and remain more important to me. So I do, I'm starting to get a few, um, a few little bits and pieces of gossip, which I am not at liberty to share. Um, but generally speaking, I know things only about 20 minutes before the rest of the world, uh, if I ever do even. Um, so I didn't know about Ariana Grande being cast as Glinda or Cynthia Erivo being cast as Alphaba until the rest of the world knew about it. You know, yeah. uh, I was actually a little surprised. I thought Ariana Grande might be Alphaba. Um, it was an interesting, uh, conversion, but um, yeah, but I'm thrilled about it. And I yeah, no, they're I powerhouses. I'm excited. I'm curious, but like I said, yeah. the movie musical can exist, but we need a TV series too. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I agree. There's a lot of wicked left to go around. Exactly. Well, I think on that note, um, once this premiere is actually the week that this is premiering, I'll be with yeah. my students to see Wicked. So I can't wait to see the first Black Linda, Brittany oh, yes, um, yes, Johnson. Right. Johnson. Uh, yeah, and um, okay, so, well, I have the Wicked tie-in, but I want to, you know, promote, please get your hands on The Brides of Maricor, right? This is, right. I don't want to say a spin-off series, but it's- That's just, that's just good a yeah. way to say it, anything else. Yeah. Another Day is your new trilogy series. The new trilogy, and, it's, and it concerns rain, the granddaughter of Alphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West. So it seems like some Zoom wizardry was happening, maybe from the authoritarian Emerald City, but our Zoom quickly ended. So I do want you all out there to know, um, we want to officially thank you, Mr. McGuire. This was an amazing interview. We hope you all enjoyed listening and watching if you're watching on our Patreon. So make sure you get your hands on Gregory Maguire's new spinoff series, Another Day. The first volume is called The Brides of Maricor. So we can't wait to read it. 
I'm really hoping I can get Gregory back on the podcast to talk about it um, and try to do as many deep dives as possible of his novels without tiring him out. Um, and also he has a new children's book called Cress Watercress. It is coming out on March 29th and it is all about animal adventures. So that looks really exciting. Thank you again, Gregory. And here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, we wanna make sure that you follow us on social media. You can follow us on Instagram and on TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook business page. So just search us. And we have a Patreon where you can find all of our video interviews, including this one on patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And you can even get some of our merchandise. Um, also, I want to thank the team without whom this would never be possible. So thank you to Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. Thank you to Jaren Usta, our marketing director, and our two interns, Kimberly Dallas and Nicole Arguello. Thank you so much. Thank you also to Decca Broadway who provided the Wicked music that you heard. So make sure you go to our show notes and you can stream the Wicked cast album or go to Decca Broadway's website and you'll find Wicked and so much more. Thank you all so much. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time. That means a wizard. Hey.